0: This is 365 Honest Questions About the Bible. I am your long-suffering host, Dante Stack. Today we are on question number 28. And for the first time in quite a few weeks, my friends, we're doing an episode that's nothing special. (laughs) And I mean to say, like, okay, we did our three-part series, then right after that we did a listener question episode, then we did a raw episode, then last week we did our first guest conversational episode, episode, so it's been many, many weeks since we've actually just done a regular, no thrills, no gimmicks, no nothing type of episode. Well, here we go. Here it is. Question 28. The question is, are Dibbicks real? Now, you might not know what a Dibbick is. I didn't until a couple weeks ago, but it's actually quite interesting, and I've phrased that question, are dibbcks real, to go along with our earlier question from many, many weeks ago, are dragons real? Hmm? Alright, so we're talking about something interesting, interesting on the level of dragons, alright? But we'll get into it, right after the music, now. So as you're probably aware, I'm a bit of a latecomer to the podcast bandwagon. You know, it was just recently that podcasts showed that they're the new kid on the block and they actually have power and raw nerve because Barack Obama, our current U.S. president, went on a podcast to do an interview. But really that comes on the heels of a whole year and probably a couple years now of podcasts gaining and gaining and gaining and I think we really saw the first cultural phenomenon of a podcast when Serial came on the stage, this investigative journalism podcast that was famous enough that Saturday Night Live did a sketch mocking it. So you know you've hit primetime when you're famous enough that SNL is mocking you. But all that to say, obviously, I started my two podcasts in January of 2015, and so I've had years of listening to other podcasts before I decided... Hey, I like what they do. I want to do it too. So anyway, this is all to say that I am first and foremost a lover of podcasts before I was ever a podcaster myself. And one of the podcasts that I've grown to cherish, though it is immensely dumb, is a podcast called The Flop House. And this is just an audio podcast done by three guys, two of which are current writers for The Daily Show. Uh, so they're good comedy guys, and they just do reviews or recaps of the worst movies, big flops, and they have a good time doing it. They, of course, have potty mouths, and, uh, it is not family fun, it is adult humor. And I certainly don't want to tip my cap there and say everyone should listen to them because they do get pretty gross sometimes. But anyway, a few weeks ago, I was listening to a review that they did of this movie, 2009's The Unborn. Now, I never saw that movie, and that's one of the reasons I like listening to the podcast is because I get to hear the gritty, stupid details of all the movies that I don't want to actually take the time to watch, but I at least get kind of the plot summaries of this to feed my always hungry story stomach. So they're going on, and the Unborn, I remember when the posters came out for it, it just looked like another generic ghost haunted movie, you know? Doesn't look like it has anything to make it distinct from anything else. But as they were describing the plot of this... The main character is haunted by what they call a Dibbuk. And they go on to explain that a Dibbuk is, to put it real bluntly, a Jewish ghost. In Jewish folklore, a Dybbuk is this Jewish spirit or this person that's died but then doesn't have anywhere to go. So it's just like floating around and has some unfinished business. From what I've read, it sounds very much kind of like the plot of The Sixth Sense where, you know, the the little boy that sees dead people actually has to like help these ghosts resolve their unresolved conflicts so that they can go on to wherever they need to go in ghost afterlife. That's kind of the gist I get of what a Dybbuk is, is this Jewish myth that when people die some of them have unfinished business or aren't holy enough maybe to go on to wherever god wants them to go on to next so they just kind of float around and float into things and oftentimes they're angry about their situation you know so they're malicious and so generally speaking the idea is adibic equals judaism's version or i shouldn't say judaism jewish mythology's version of the classic ghost story Now, immediately, I'm always intrigued by Jewish culture and Jewish mythology because it relates so much to my own personal Christianity. And nine times out of ten, you know, a Jewish belief is rooted in the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament. So that's fun for me, that's fun for the whole family, right? So I thought, okay, maybe I should research and see if this Dibbuk character, this ghost, this Jewish ghost, shows up anywhere in the Old Testament. And unfortunately, my early analysis my initial findings were no. The old Hebrew word that dibbuk comes from, which appears to just look like dibk, uh, which means to cleave or to cling to, which is kind of a cool illustrative word for like a ghost, right? Like something that needs to cling to another soul, right? It doesn't have a body for itself, so it has to cleave to yours. I kind of like that in a gothic type of sense. But this word dibk or anything referring specifically to a dibbuk does not show up in the Old Testament at all. Are dibbocks real? On first analysis, no, they are not. Sad day. But then, the obvious next question is okay, if this idea of a dibbock doesn't directly come from the Old Testament, if that word isn't directly derived from the Old Testament, where does it come from? And the answer to that's going to take us down a brief rabbit hole that we're barely going to scratch. But first, I want to kind of start with one of the conclusions of that rabbit hole and work backwards. So the conclusion of the rabbit hole is that the roots of the Dybbuk idea are from the Kabbalah. Which, if you're like me, you mostly know it because that's the religion... That the singer Madonna has embraced. And in my brain, I've always associated Kabbalah with, like, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormonism of Judaism, right? Like, I imagine Kabbalah like the offshoots, the weird red-headed stepchild of Judaism as Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses are to mainstream Protestant Catholic Christianity. But again, more on that later. So, writings of the Kabbalah and some rabbis seem to contest that we actually do see a dibbuk showing up in the Old Testament, and it shows up in this story revolving around King Saul in the book we call First Samuel. And as soon as I saw that they were referencing this passage as the one for evidence of a dibbuk's existence, I knew right there, Whew, we got ourselves an episode. This is going on three sixty-five, man. Oh yeah. Because this passage is really weird. Like all the passages I bring to you, right? Only the weird ones. So I'm just going to read this straight to you. This passage just precedes the David and Goliath story. Right before the David and Goliath story, we get this section. All right, so I'm going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 16 verses 14 through 23. Here we go. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who was with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul said to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul... David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. So in the big story of King Saul followed by King David, this is our big introduction where Saul meets David. And it just so happens that David is this guy who has the power to play an instrument really well, and for whatever reason, playing that instrument well soothes Saul and forces this harmful spirit to depart from Saul. Now, our job would be really simple here if the Hebrew word for Dibbuk showed up in this story. If it was a harmful Dibbuk came and fell upon Saul. Then we could wipe our hands of this and be like, okay, Dibbuk's are real. Here's a Dibbuk on full display for us in the Old Testament. Done and done. But unfortunately, no, that's not the Hebrew word we see here. And forgive me for not pronouncing this right, but the Hebrew word appears to be rauchin, something like that which literally means like formless thing or wandering formless one, something like that. So harmful spirit has this really weird mystical attachment to it, but it doesn't necessarily mean ghost or doesn't necessarily mean disembodied soul of someone who's died. So I figure the first thing to do when trying to get to the bottom of this, you know, we have to ask ourselves, we have to ask ourselves, what does the Bible mean when it's, talking about this harmful spirit entering into Saul. And as far as my internet research provided for me, I found kind of four possibilities. It's a demon, it's an angel, it's depression, or, wild card, it actually is a dybbuk. Now, I think every time I've read this, I've associated harmful spirit with the word demon. But there's a problem with that. There is a word for demon, and that word isn't being used here. It's not being utilized. So if this is a demon, why doesn't the text simply say, and God sent a harmful demon, or even a harmful angel, to torment Saul, right? Angel and demon, both those answers kind of fall under the same response, right? Why aren't those specific words used in this case? Well, all right, Dante, but as you've talked about in earlier episodes, The whole mythology of demons wasn't quite concreted in the Old Testament like it was in the New Testament. So the fact that they're not using the word demon in the Old Testament doesn't necessarily mean anything. All right, I hear what you're saying there, imaginary comebacker person. But if we look to the New Testament, we see Jesus and he's going around and he's exorcising demons all over the place, right? And he's consistently using that Greek word daimonion. You know, the Greek word for demon. But there are some places when he doesn't use the word demon. Here's a parable Jesus tells. So it's a parable, so it doesn't necessarily have to have a literal application or literal meaning, right? But nevertheless, here it is. This is Matthew 12, verses 43 through 45. This is Jesus speaking. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first, so also will it be with this evil generation. Alright, so just to be clear, in this parable Jesus' application is not to give us a systematic theology of demons or the hierarchical realm of the heavenlies or anything like that, right? He's making a point, actually, about present-day Judea, the spiritual state of the Jewish people and those around him. Nevertheless, it is intriguing that he uses this word unclean spirit, which seems to be the Greek word for the Hebrew meaning of this rachin, this formless spirit, this formless thing. So to me, that seems to establish that there's two different camps here. There's demons and there's whatever these formless spirit things are. Same thing with angels. Angels are in the same camp with demons, right? So those were our first two possibilities of what could be in Saul in this passage. Third possibility, which apparently a lot of people hold to, is that Saul was experiencing severe depression or some sort of mental illness. And on a certain level, okay, I can understand how if you're just mentally anguished and suddenly someone plays sweet music to you, that could lessen your anxiety or just make you feel more stable. But all those arguments seem also to be based off of this idea that the Jewish people didn't have a language to describe depression or, you know, fell short of being able to understand mental illness at all. So they had to, they had to attribute an actual deity of some sort to it, an actual spirit to it. And that doesn't sit very well with me. You know, the writers of the Old Testament, the thinkers, the Hebrew thinkers, they were smart cookies, you know? I personally tend to kind of hold to the conviction, and this is just a personal feeling, so I could be way off base here, but generally, I kind of feel that as society progresses and, you know, we get more technologies and there's more things we rely on, as a whole, people are getting kind of dumber, generation to generation, century to century, even though I know, like, yes, yes, more people are literate now than ever before. And those sorts of things, but just like problem solving and abstract thinking. I don't know. Just a couple minutes on Facebook and you're slapping your head and feeling like the intelligence level is not rising. <laughs> so, in that same way, when I look at peoples from the ancient world, I tend to ascribe to them a good deal of like, not necessarily wisdom, but like figure it outiveness, like a jack of all tradesness. And so if Saul had some sort of mental anguish or a mental illness or God struck him with depression, I don't understand why the writer of 1 Samuel wouldn't figure out some other way to say that. That wouldn't be so confusing. Furthermore, you know, we covered just a few episodes ago in our last of our three-part series on If God is Evil. We looked at 1 Kings 22 wherein it talks about God talking to a host of heaven and asking questions, and the spirit comes up and says, hey, I will go and I will do this thing. And that's the same word there, this formless spirit thing. So for me, the depression thing doesn't hold much water. So then, by default, if we get rid of our first three explanations, the only other explanation left is Dibbuk, the fourth one. But if we're giving in to the Dybbuk, then we're also giving in to some sort of understanding that the Kabbalah has gotten something right, or that there's some legitimacy to it, which I'm slow to want to suggest. And the reason for that is, if you look at the history of Kabbalah, and I'm no expert by any stretch of the imagination on this, this is just like a day or two of menial research, so if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But so far, what I've uncovered is that the Kabbalah as a system, as its own function of Judaism, or as its own branch of Judaism, or as its own completely separate religion, is really nowhere to be found until maybe the 13th century. Around that time... This is medieval Judaism. There's these sets of writings called the Zohar. Now, there's also something to this that makes me feel like there's a certain evolution going on. And that's because, really from day one, the way rabbis have interacted with their congregations and the way the Jewish faith seems to have, not necessarily evolved, but stayed... Energetic, I'll say, for lack of a better word, is a constant meditation on the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and its exegesis, its interpretation. And so from what I understand, there's three rungs of interpretation, three levels of interpreting the Torah. The first is called the Peshat, and that's a direct interpretation of the meaning of the text. So that's reading, and there was a great worldwide flood and Noah built an ark and telling the people, okay, so Noah was this guy and then he used wood and he built this ark. All right, the next level, level two, is the remez. And that's like the allegoric meaning. So, for instance, the tortoise and the hare, Aesop's fables. Obviously, there's more to the story than a tortoise actually beat out a rabbit in a foot race. No, the meaning is be vigilant, keep on working, don't get lazy, right? Right? Clearly, that story has an allegoric meaning that is supposed to be interpreted. And so the second rung is doing that with the Old Testament. Clearly, there's more to the story of Noah's Ark, even if the literal meaning is true, but there's also more we can take away from it than strictly this one thing happened. And the third level is called the derosh. And again, I could be mispronouncing all these words, but the derosh is a word that literally means like inquiry inquire. And that's where we get the midrash, all these long rabbinical exegesis of the meanings. Um, it's taking it a step further than a direct allegory. It's where you're using highly imaginative comparisons to kind of extract the point and build on it from the text. All right. So you can kind of see, I mean, in my brain, I see it as almost a flow chart of like you're getting further and further away from the initial text with each of these levels of of interpretation. Well, supposedly, from day one, but it doesn't really show up until medieval Judaism in the 13th century, and what the Zohar claims to say, is that there's this fourth rung of interpretation, the sod. And the sod means the secret meaning. And that's reading the Torah for its esoteric, its deep, its hidden message. And so I read that right away, and I'm like, Ooh, that seems like the type of thing where you could easily... You know, just say, ah, there's all these meanings in this section that I should actually be very polygamous and you should all marry me and I should be king, right? It, it, When there's these secret meanings, it always reeks to me of of a power play where only one person or a oligarchy will have the claim to know the real truth behind this thing. The Kabbalah is all based on this fourth rung of interpretation, this esoteric, mystic reading of the Old Testament, specifically the Torah. And from time to time, you kind of got to give it to him. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that the tree of life, it's, it's hard to understand what is really being talked about, what those things mean, what they represent. Was there a real tree in Genesis? What did the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil actually taste like? I don't know. Those are separate questions. But the Jewish mysticism would jump in and try to answer those types of questions and build on that type of stuff. And so out of this comes the idea of the dibbuk. Or the idea that all souls don't go to heaven right away. All souls don't go to hell right away. Some souls are just like floating around waiting for another thing to do. And this is where I hit an impasse. Because the Kabbalah stuff seems kind of like baloney to me. At least a lot of it does. Because I just don't know how they reach these these high conclusions based off of like so scant little evidences or so scant phrases or terminologies. And then they build on this and they tell you these insane things that I can't reason my way there by any stretch of the imagination. Now, why I should be using reason to stretch my imagination is a whole nother story, but that's a personal problem. <laughs> but while I'm at an impasse with that, I have to kind of nod my head, and I mentioned this in a, a recent Raw episode, that the Old Testament's relationship with the afterlife is, is strained. It's weird. It's incomplete. And although I'm not willing to touch on it in this episode because it would take us down a long rabbit hole that we would really have to vet to get into today, the New Testament even hints at the Old Testament's weirdness, too. <laughs> if that piques your interest, just go and read Second Peter. That's That's enough to keep you company for a while, I would reckon. As a Protestant Christian, I was raised in my household. My parents raised me to believe that there are no such things as ghosts. Anything that would seem like a malicious ghost is a demon. Because Paul said, absent was the body, present with the Lord. As soon as you die, our theology seems to state that you're dead. You go on to the next thing. You don't just float around. But the trouble, at least before Christ, the trouble before Jesus comes, is that I don't know if that necessarily had to be the case back then. And to prove my point of the obscuredness here, or the incompleteness, or the potential ghostiness of the times, I don't even have to leave the book of 1 Samuel. So I want to end this episode by just reading 1 Samuel chapter 28, 1 through 19. I'll just read those 19 verses and sign off. So think about it. Think about whether you buy into this Dibbuk thing or not. And I promise, on a future day, we'll actually deal and try to figure out this specific passage. Because it's a doozy. So here's the context. We've already met King Saul. Saul is the first king of Israel. Saul is chosen by God, by Samuel, to be the first king of Israel, right? Now Samuel is the old, well-esteemed prophet of all of Israel. So he's, everybody's line to God, essentially. God speaks to Samuel. Samuel tells King Saul what to do. That seemed to be the relationship. Then Saul does some bad stuff. God says, look, Saul, you're done. I'm taking the kingdom away from you. I'm giving the kingdom to David. Saul doesn't like this. And for many years, Saul's out to try to kill David. And there's this cat and mouse game that goes on between David and Saul for many years. During all this, Samuel, the prophet, that both David and Saul love, or at least respect highly, dies. Samuel dies. The prophet to God, the connection to God, dies. And then this happens. First Samuel, chapter 28, starting in verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him at Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, or by Urim, or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a god coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me. And God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. This is Dante Stack, signing out. Peace be the journey.